Hello, I'm Mark Petruzzi, host of Selling the Cloud podcast. And I'm Ray Reich, your co-host of the show. We talk to a wide variety of cloud and SaaS industry thought leaders and revenue generation experts. Who share their unique insight into what is required to build and grow a great business in the cloud. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of Selling the Cloud Podcast. I'm Ray Reich, your host on today's episode, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Petruzzi. Today, we are excited to have Doug Landis, growth partner at Emergence Capital, and formerly the chief storyteller at Box. Today, we'll be covering three main areas. Doug's journey from chief storyteller to becoming a venture capital growth partner, why is storytelling evolved as such a critical skill for today's B2B sales professional? And what are the core elements of effective storytelling? And how can a sales professional like you learn that skill? Doug, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Selling the Cloud podcast. Hey, everybody. Doug Landis, as you mentioned, Ray, growth partner at Emergence Capital. Just for context, Emergence Capital is an early stage B2B enterprise SaaS venture capital firm. We invest in series A, B stage companies that are SaaS, enterprise SaaS focused. We were fortunate enough 15, 16 years ago to make a bet, actually perfectly appropriate with the background of both you and Mark. We made a bet 16 years ago that all software was going to move to the cloud. And I would say that was a pretty significant and smart bet. Our first investment was Salesforce and we followed on with Yammer and Box and Diva and several others. So that's why I'm here. Talk about wow. cloud. So from Salesforce to Box to Emergence Capital, that's quite a pedigree. So tell me about that. How yeah. did you become a growth partner? You were an operator, yes. have a lot of experience in sales productivity and sales enablement. How did you become a growth partner to top tier VC firm? And, and Doug, I'll, I'll add in one more part of that question. With all those great picks that you made, have you made any not so great picks along the way? Doesn't sound like it. Oh, that is such an interesting question. Look, if we were to actually do like the path to how I got to emergence, I will tell you this, it is not a straight line. It has been all over the place. Yeah, I started a few companies of my own. One of them was in the early days before the big dot bomb, late 90s, early 2000s. It was an exchange for nonprofit organizations to help them find funding from institutions like government agencies and foundations, kind of like Match.com, but for nonprofits. You know, we raised a couple of rounds of capital and then the dot bomb hit. And so, of course, we had to let everybody go and file for solvency or bankruptcy, which really sucked. So that wasn't a huge success. Although I learned more doing that than I think at almost any other job I've had because of all the different roles that you have to play and understanding of what it takes to actually build a company, which is, you know, I think that's actually an important part to my journey to getting into venture because I've always had this entrepreneurial spirit and entrepreneurial drive. I love building. In fact, when I was a little kid, I was, I worked in construction over the summers because I love seeing like, oh, we're going to tear this down and we're going to build up something. You get to see the final product. But yeah, I mean, look, the journey into venture is not an easy one. Let's just say it out. Everybody wants to get into it. It is so effing hard to get in. And it wasn't necessarily part of my master plan. I would say part of it was luck in terms of how I got in, largely due to the fact that I did two things, I think, fairly well over the course of my career. One is I've always been really focused on my network and my connections, and I value those very deeply. I always try to give first versus take from my network and my community. And so that's allowed me to build connections in a wide variety of industries and different levels and different roles. And then secondarily, I think early on, I learned like, 
I'm a seller at heart. I love selling. It's fun. It sucks. It's the hardest job on the planet, but I love selling. I love the process of problem solving. And again, also coming from a servant sales perspective, like thinking about how can I help you? And by the way, helping you may just be to walk away, maybe the right plan of attack. And so as a result of that, one of the things that I learned early on in my career, after carrying a bag for a long time and getting the door shut on me and almost getting fired for missing my number and you know, having to make a hundred calls a day. And if we didn't, we were on the, you know, potentially getting fired. I can tell an Oracle on the list. If you're on the bottom, you're nervous. <laughs> wearing a suit at 5.30 in the morning. But, you know, one of the things that I learned was it was actually helping other sellers realize more of their potential that actually got me really fired up. And that's kind of how I made this transition from carrying a bag to getting in the world of productivity enablement. It's also the process and the operational and strategy side of selling too was also super interesting to me. And so that's kind of how I made that transition from a bag carrying rep to productivity enablement, strategy ops. And so you combine those two along with my love for entrepreneurship, if you will, or building coupled with my massive network coupled with luck because emergence just happened to be investors in Salesforce and in Box. And I built up a brand for myself. And so we just started talking. They actually reached out to me and they're like, hey, we've been thinking about how do we add more value to our portfolio companies other than just writing a check? And that's how it evolved. And next thing you know, I'm in venture. I'm on the dark side, <laughs> if you will. It's been a crazy journey. Well, let me follow up to that a little bit because when I first met you, Doug, and I looked at your LinkedIn profile, it's like, chief storyteller. I yeah. never seen that job or a job description. Can you tell us a little bit about how chief storyteller came to be a role at Box? And for me, what were the roles and responsibility of a chief storyteller? Yeah. So interesting as well. It kind of, kind of goes hand in hand with like my journey. Cause again, not really all that consistent actually kind of came out of left field. So about six years ago, when I was at box, we hired a new chief revenue officer, very dashing and charming gentleman by the name of Graham Younger, who came from SAP success factors, also ex Oracle. Right. So it comes in like this BFD or big swinging, you know what I mean? And so, you know, my job is to try and help onboard him, right. Help him understand here's the nature of the sales organization here, are where the gaps are, here's where I think the opportunities, et cetera. So one of the first things that we did is we went around to a bunch of reps. And he asked him like, so how do you pitch box? How do you talk about box? How do you tell the box story? And what we found was we got about 25 different versions. And of course the light bulb came on when he pulled me aside and he's like, so we have a consistency issue here. No one says the same thing. We were all over the place. And how are we going to continue to scale and grow if we're not actually on message? And it's interesting. So rewind even further, that was a big ethos and big part of Mark Benioff. Every year at Dreamforce, Mark had a new message and a new narrative. And his initiative was every single customer facing rep at Salesforce had to be on message, period. So in the early days, I actually traveled all around the world and trained everybody on how to get on message, how to do presentations, how to actually deliver the Salesforce message in the right way. We built a whole model around how to grade and manage that process. And so it kind of always stuck with me, this like, how do you create consistency from the top all the way down? And what was interesting, and one of the things that I noticed as I started digging into the challenge at Box was there was a disconnect. And this is super common across all organizations. You've got founder CEO that's out here at 10,000 or 40,000 feet trying to tell the narrative that is theirs, right? Whether that's the origin story that's based on their background, their research, their own kind of like DNA, if you will. And so at Box, you've got Aaron Levy, who's like so prolific of a thought leader and so prolific of a communicator. And then you've got a marketing organization that's also broken up by 
products, right? Mm -hmm. Product marketing has different products. And so their job is to try and take what Aaron or Mark or anybody else says and turn it into materials that they can both use from a marketing perspective, but also to give the sales team to use, right? And the problem with that is it was never really cohesive. You got five, six, seven different products and they're all like different little product pitches. And then you've got the reps trying to pull it all together and also say the same thing that Aaron's saying. And so it's just a hot mess. And so what ends up happening is everyone by default goes to the least common denominator, which a box was like, oh yeah, we're cloud storage, we're file storage, right? And then that was like, whoa, timeout, we can't say that. We're, you know, a cloud-based management platform, blah, blah. And so it got really messy. And then on top of all of this, the thing that I kept noticing, and I've always kind of been weirded out by this, but is like all of our customer stories were so rote, just felt very kind of robotic because most customer stories are customer logo, problem, solution, value, right? So there's no real narrative around it. Actually, if you break it down, which I'll give you some structure to think about, there's no real narrative. And so we're saying, hey, use more customer stories. Don't sound like a robot. You know, tell the story, but can't tell Aaron's story because that's his story. And oh, by the way, piece all this Frankenstein slides together into something that actually works for you. Hence the reason why you get 25 different versions, you know, when a new VP of sales or CRO comes in and says, hey, talk to me about how you pitch your company. And so I came up with this idea because I was at a point where I was like, I was either going to leave or it was time for me to go do something else. But I came up with this idea. I said, you know, Aaron, we've got to change the way we talk about Box. We can't be like you. And I feel like I have a pretty good handle on this. And I want to get customer success more involved in this conversation because the, I believe customer success actually gets the real details about what value means to our customers in their language, right? They take the ball over the line. They understand how it actually is being used, who's using it, the value that they're getting out of it. They understand the people side of it. And I was like, that needs to be on both in both the marketing's hands and in the sales rep's hands. And so I built this role. I just came up with it. I'm like, I'm going to call myself the chief storyteller, reported to Aaron for a period of time. We didn't have a CMO at the time. So I was like, this is in this weird gray area, which I seem to fit well into. The idea was like, how do we use the voice of our customers and turn our narrative upside down and become much more about our customers, what we've learned from our customers. And, and in order to do that, by the way, we also then had to get better at storytelling. It was twofold. It was the materials had to change because we needed a different perspective and different point of view instead of it being all about us, Fox, look at how great we are. It had to be all about our customers and what we've learned from them and what they've shared with us. And then in addition, we also had to get better at the mechanics of storytelling. And so that's where the role came from. You know, you know they say luck is what? Preparation and opportunity. So opportunity was there because there was a gap and my preparation was, I mean, I had nothing really to lose, honestly. And it was so in this that, analysis. I was like, whoa, like this is a great gap. So Doug, first off, what a story. And what blows me away is just how you picked up on, you know, the most powerful thing about storytelling is you can't tell somebody else's story. So for these reps that are out there every day, telling the founder's story, it doesn't go anywhere. There's no emotion yeah. that connects to it. And you picked up on that, which I think is really, really kind of monumental. And remember, everybody has their story. It may be based off the founder's story, totally. but there's a reason why you're there as a sales rep. There's a reason why you left Oracle and went to salesforce.com. And that's where the emotion kicks into it. And that's what makes it authentic. Yeah. So I, I love that you picked up on that so early. Yeah, well, I mean, I think part of it was because I was out telling the box story largely whenever Aaron wasn't around or, you know, I, we would go to our investors and they would have these customer visits with these big giant customers and I'd be out telling the box story. And I'd, after telling it just thousands of times and then hearing Aaron in my ear, 
And I'm thinking, I'm like, mm, I got I need to make this personal. I got to make it about like my why, not necessarily his why. By the way, you can tell a founder's story, but you have to be very clear about the fact that that's their story, or you still have to draw a connection from their story to your story and to why that matters to your audience. So you can tell it, you can't try to be like them and tell it from their point of view, because then you lose all credibility. Doug, let me dig down on that a little bit because I'm an engineer by schooling and I'm very metrics driven, as you know. <laughs> yes, indeed. So I think about other B2B sales professionals out there who maybe aren't natural storytellers. Can the average sales rep become a great storyteller and how do they learn that skill, Doug? Yep, 100%. Here's the good news. You're not born a great storyteller. It's learned. It's a learned skill. Now, here's the good news. As human beings, we do it already every single day. It's just for some reason, we don't tend to do it at work, right? Because we have to be all professional and polished or we have to have follow this work structure of bullets and fragments and it has to be quick. I need to highlight the important words, what have you, or I need it in a graph or whatever the case may be. But the truth is, is when we all leave work well, right now, we walk out of our home office and walk into the living room or the kitchen, we start talking in story form. How was your day? That was amazing. I did this podcast with Ray and Mark. Here's what it was about. And there's all of a sudden, that's how we communicate, but we just shift gears when we get to work. So the good news is everyone naturally is already a storyteller. Some of you are better than others. Two, it is a learned skill. It starts by learning how to listen and pay attention to your surroundings and pay attention to the environment, i.e. listening also means knowing who your audience is and who's going to be in the audience. You got to be a little bit more thoughtful going into every meeting or conversation. But it is definitely a skill that we all can learn. And it's something that I teach on a regular basis to all of our portfolio companies. I'm writing a book about it right now. So there are mechanics that you as an engineer can unpack and easily incorporate. But I will say, just like anything, it takes thoughtful practice. Let me ask Mark a question on this, kind of piggybacking on that, Doug. Do you think that a storytelling curriculum should be part of every sales enablement program to be able to take your messaging and positioning that marketing comes up with and actually tell in a compelling kind of emotional hook story way? What do you think, Mark? Yeah, I absolutely do. And, you know, Doug hit on it as well. Like storytelling is a learned behavior and just opening yourself up to doing it at work. There are people who are amazing storytellers in life that never do it in work. So, and I've always looked at it this way, telling a joke is kind of innate in my mind. You either have to have that ability or not, but telling a story is different. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a great comparison because I think being funny or being a comedian or telling a joke is actually harder than storytelling. Oh, 10 times. Way harder yep. because there's timing involved. Right. Your elements. And this would be great to actually have a comedian on, on like a panel discussion and talk about the difference between telling jokes and telling stories. Although a lot of comedians actually become famous because of their storytelling abilities. Yes. And, you know, like the big turning point or the, oh my gosh, moment that they had is like hilarious because we can all relate and experience that. We've all experienced that to a degree. But yeah, telling a joke on the spot. I suck at it. I am terrible. terrible. Yes. I, am, I am terrible, but storytelling, I definitely get. By the way, just for a little bit of context too, I didn't realize this until, of course, later on, but so I started acting. I started taking acting classes and started acting when I was a little kid, like when I was five years old. And one of the things about acting and improv that you learn to do is you learn to get into a character, to own that character, and your job is to tell that character's story to an audience, an audience of whom you don't know. Right? In many cases, when you're on stage, it's pitch black and you, all you can see are a few people up front 
either laughing or not laughing, <laughs> which gets you really emotionally uncomfortable, if you will. But learning how to do that at an early age, I think really kind of set me up for this later stage kind of career progression of mine in, in the world of storytelling, because I had to do it. It was just part of the skill set. So I would also say in the world of sales enablement, if you're looking for skill development courses, take an improv class, bring it. improv into your organization, because the more you can actually communicate with emotion and empathy on the spot when things are going sideways. Have you ever been in a presentation where all of a sudden the screen doesn't work or yeah. your laptop breaks down and like you're on, there's 400 people in the room. You're like, well, what do I do? Right? Like you need to be able to react and respond in that moment. And I think for salespeople, it's an invaluable skill. So Doug, we knew Ray did some great research beforehand and we knew about your experience as an actor, <laughs> as a comedian. Uh -oh. And I'll tell you a perfect example. Think about Dave Chappelle as an example of someone, Dave. great comedian, right? And usually great comedians, as you said, are great storytellers as well. So he's both. He can tell, you know, I can listen to him for hours at a time talking about his life. He lives in this small town still where he grew up. He probably has like a 60,000 square foot house in this rural <laughs> town, but he lives there and he tells this story in, on the Netflix show that he did and any other chance he can get. But to that point, there is so much opportunity in the storytelling world and improv is great. I actually had a little different circumstance myself. I have a bunch of friends that I knew early in life, grew up with a couple that went into acting and directing and producing. And I had some great opportunities where I've even been a producer on a couple of shows. I've actually been able to be a director of a movie that we did over the years. You know, and in the book, there's a lot of description of friends of mine, like Craig Singer, who did a bunch of movies, Dark Ride being one of them. Flody Suarez just finished up the Share show on Broadway before everything shut down. Barry Habib, who does Rock of Ages, one of the creators of that, and many others. And it gave me this opportunity to be involved in some of their pitch meetings. And man, you want to learn how to tell a story? Go in with a creative person like oh, yeah. those individuals into a pitch meeting and you'll learn how to do it. But we all don't get that opportunity. So I think <laughs> did it. improv yeah. class is an amazing start. Yeah, totally. So the interesting thing you say about like, you know, a pitch contest or pitch meeting, because, you know, the one thing about storytelling that I try and remind people is there is a way to get into a story and a way to get out of a story. Right. And so like a pitch contest, you got to be really careful. Are you just going to tell one big story that has like a one salient point? Are you going to tell a bunch of little stories? Yep. Are, how are you going to get in? How are you going to get out? How are you going to transition? I do a lot of presentation training. And one of the things that I say is like from your slides, one of the most valuable things you can actually learn and you must memorize and you must write it down is how do you transition from one slide to the next to make it feel seamless? Like you're not presenting a bunch of slides and a bunch of data that you're trying to tell a story and transitions are really helpful in that, right? And so with pitch contests, one of the things you have to be careful about because you have a very limited amount of time is how do you incorporate story form or story mechanics or yep. even stories into that format? And again, it takes practice, but at the end of the day, it actually takes understanding the core mechanics of story form, yeah. right? Hollywood, by the way, has their version, which, you know, those people who read Hollywood books about, you know, how to create stories, that's not really appropriate for business stories. Let's just no be doubt. really clear. The yep. Hollywood story form is not 100% appropriate for business stories, if you will, or the corporate world. 
Hey, Doug, it's funny that you say that because I had a discussion just a couple of weeks ago with a gentleman named Bill Reichert, and he is a managing director at Garage Technology Ventures. And he wrote a book called Getting to Wow, The Secrets of Pitching to Silicon Valley VCs. And he said, you know, the story arc in Hollywood, right? It kind of cresses over time and comes back down and it's all tied together. But storytelling in business is it needs to be a story for the point you're trying to make. So it's not an overarching storyline. It's a story for a particular point. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask you was, can you actually teach storytelling about something beyond product feature function and how it helps address a business concern? Can it be emotional and aspirational to the buyer persona themselves? Can there yes. be stories there? You're right, because look, getting to the wow in a VC pitch, here's the thing. VCs, we like data, we like metrics. You know, we write about the five M's at Emergence. We talk about if you're going to go to try and raise a Series A, we wrote an article on like the five M's and what we're looking for in particular. I mean, here's the thing though. I will tell you when you're launching into a VC presentation, you know, a lot of people like to start off with a summary slide. Here's how we progressed. Here's how we're doing. Here's, you know, how much capital we've burned thus far. Whatever is going to be on that summary slide to date with the business. The reality is I think the best thing that you can do when launching into a VC pitch is tell a story. Yeah. And largely the story that I want to hear is why, okay? So we spend way too much time focusing on the what and the how. Here's what we do. Here's how we do it. Here's how we're getting customers and, right? But we don't talk enough about the why. Like why you? So when we think about in just investing in companies in particular, that one of the first things that we're looking at is the CEO and what's the CEO's superpower, right? Have they done this before? Do they have industry expertise? Do they have knowledge or some sort of trademark that is unique? What's their it factor? By the way, very similar to Hollywood. A lot of Hollywood's looking for actors that have that it factor. It's hard to actually pinpoint what it is, but there definitely is an element there that makes them unique. You know, it says, I want to partner or I want to work with this person. The next thing, of course, is their ability to hire amazing people around them. So there are certain things that we're looking for in your presentation besides just like, yeah, look at how much growth, you know, up and to the right graph. We all want to see that. Guess what? In a Series A pitch, we're going to see that. If you don't have that, you're not going to come talk to us. This is really not the right fit, right? So, you know, the wow piece, one of the things I want to touch on here that you mentioned, Ray, which I think really is important when it comes to storytelling is just you have to be really clear about the point you're trying to make. Yes. That is so crucial. The reason why people suck at storytelling and the reason why people come on the clubhouse and annoy the sheep <laughs> out of most of us is they come on and they just start rambling. You're like, dude, where are you going with said statement? Or is this a statement? Or is it a question? Is this just you talking? Like, I don't really understand it because you weren't thoughtful enough. You MFers who were wasting our time, you weren't thoughtful enough to think about what's the point I'm trying to make before I open my mouth. And I think fact, that is an exercise everyone has to go through before you start storytelling. It's like the old saying, hey, here's an idea. Have a point next time you say something. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. By the way, I mean, it's the same thing. And I, I say this often, but like when you're building slides, one point per slide, one point per slide. Don't try and squeeze six points on the slide. Even that summary slide that you want to send to an investor that's got like, oh, here's how we're doing from a traction perspective, from a revenue perspective, from a growth or a cash burn perspective. Guess what? That's three points. So yes. think about it. What's the one point you're trying to make with this summary, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, the summary is we're doing way better than we thought. Awesome. Write that out. So let's take this a little bit into, you know, I love how we're covering the difference between selling when you're selling for money, 
you know, to a VC trying to get an investment. That's one thing. But selling our products, you know, when we go into that side, I have a premise now that particularly as we get into millennials, there is, you know, Steve Jobs has taught us all that, you know, we want to buy cool. We want to buy it. We want to buy an experience. Experience. We want to buy a why, right? And again, it makes storytelling even more important because you can't tell a why on a slide. You can't tell an experience in my mind on a slide. You can only really convey those things in a story, you know, Mm -hmm. and from an overall standpoint, that's where I think it's so important to keep that in mind when we're selling to clients, because that's how they want to buy nowadays. I'm going to challenge you for a second there. I love it. Because I I actually disagree. I think you can actually incorporate a lot of why in a slide. And Steve Jobs did an amazing job of it. You know what he did? If you look at all the slides, what are they? Images, right? So you walk into a Steve Jobs presentation, it's an image and you're like, oh, I want that. That looks amazing. And in my mind, I see an image of a phone that's doing three things. And I'm like, I can imagine one of the most powerful words in storytelling. I can imagine what I can do with that, how that can change my life. I can become an amateur photographer. Like there's so much that I could do based on that experience that I'm feeling based on an image. That's why they say an image says a thousand words, right? Because you don't have to say all the words. You just put it up there and people start to place themselves into an experience with that image. I think the important thing about storytelling that people need to remember is we don't have to fill in all of the details. It doesn't have to be a long diatribe. It can be an image and then you let everybody else fill in the details itself, right? Because as human beings, we're trying to detect patterns, right? And when, when we detect a pattern, we then fill in the gaps. Yeah. Hence the reason why you don't have to tell all the details in the story, or you can put up an image and it's like, my brain is filling in all of the gaps based on what I've just seen or I'm experiencing. And I think that's an important vehicle in storytelling is to give people room to fill in the gaps so that they can create their own experience. Now, mind you, be very careful about the kind of experience you want them to have or the kind of experience you want to create. You put up an image, you want a positive, like, oh my gosh, I want that experience. But you have to be careful because there are cultural perceptions or maybe it's the wrong image. It's pixelated, whatever it may be. All of a sudden, it could have the adverse effect where everyone's like, ooh, ah, I can't, ooh, I don't want that. All of a sudden you lose everybody. You have to be really, really careful because you know we're going to fill in the details, right? And so be careful about what vehicle you're using or be careful about the kind of the focal point of the experience you want them to have or the emotion you want to create. Hey, Doug, one last question I have for you because I've learned so much here in 30 minutes on this particular podcast. Do you think there's the opportunity or even the need to have a professional storytelling coach that you could bring in to help you both with your sales presentation and your sales pitch? Does that seem to make sense to you? Because I don't find a lot of storytellers in most companies. Yeah, look, I think it'd be an incredible asset to an organization. One of the things that I try and make everybody acutely aware of in my workshops is like, you need to have a story library not just customer stories, which we all focus on, but I want stories by stage, by buyer persona. What story should I be using to open up my conversation with a bunch of C-suite? What stories should I use to leverage in a negotiation conversation? There's so many different types of stories. There's customer stories, there's your personal aha moment story, which everybody must own and have. If you ever used your own product, you need to have that visceral experience of like, oh, this is awesome. I can understand now why our customers have 
to have this. Because if you've experienced that, that's going to come through in how you communicate and talk about your product and the experience that your buyers or users or even your customers' customers will have as a result of having that because you've experienced it yourself. So you've got your personal aha stories, product stories. Why did we choose one capability over another? Because in the world of startups, it's all about trade-offs. You need to have, the, of course, the origin story, why you work there, value stories, competitors. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. You need stories all over the place. The challenge that we have in the work environment is all we typically have is the founder story and customer stories, which I would also argue customer stories have the wrong structure because here's the problem with most customer stories. They're more focused on a company versus not the person. person. Yes. Yes. And that's an issue. Companies are not characters. Inanimate objects are not characters. Quit trying to make them characters. Only the movies can make them characters. Only Hollywood can do that. But you... If I talk about Cisco or eBay or Facebook or whatever, the moment I mention a company, you both have a different experience in your brain, right? Whether you're on Facebook or not on Facebook, whether you like Instagram or not Instagram, whether you think Cisco is Cisco, the technology company or Cisco Foods, whatever it may be, those are companies and we can't relate to companies, but we can relate to people in roles who then have an experience. So quit telling your customer stories about companies and start telling them about people. Love it. It's interesting. I was reading a report the other day that talked about a psychological research study and human beings make decisions more on emotion yep. than logic and fact. Absolutely. And that's what works, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, buying is an emotional process. It's an emotional decision we make because there's risk associated, right? So like if I'm buying this on behalf of me and my company or my organization or my role or my team, then I am making a decision on behalf of them. And therefore I own and I have accountability and responsibility for that. That's scary. Like, what if I screwed up? I mean, I screwed up twice, almost got fired. Like, do you realize after two failed attempts of buying technology, this back when I was at Box, anybody that tried to sell me, I'm like, cool, I'm not the right person. I'm not putting my neck out on line again. You kidding me? No way. (laughs) Hey, Doug, I just found out something I may do better than you. I actually have been fired. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, like all great stories, This one needs to come to an end and I hate it. But before we wrap up, I just want to leave it with Mark, any last comments you want to make to our listening audience about storytelling? I'll let Doug wrap it up. Yeah, I'll make it real quick because I want more time for Doug. But I think just it's important to understand that this is something you need. And if you're going to be a successful sales rep, successful executive, successful CEO, this is something you need to work on. You have to make a conscious effort. And, you know, luckily we have great guys like Doug out there that can take us on a roadmap and a path to getting better here. I couldn't agree more, Mark. It is a skill that everyone in every role, including product and engineering needs to own and needs to understand because guess what? Anytime you're trying to sell something or persuade somebody or get somebody on your side or get somebody engaged, the best way to communicate is through story form. The facts and stats and data and metrics, no offense, Ray, I love metrics, but all of those are harder for us as human beings to digest and unpack. You start using story form at work, start using story form in your communication. By the way, it doesn't mean you start with, let me tell you a story. Screw that, just tell a story, but be very clear about what the point of the story is you're trying to make because without that, people are gonna get lost and confused and then you start to lose some credibility. But most often when you're telling a story, storytellers seem to be more liked. People tend to be more engaged. You tend to actually feel more trusted. So why doesn't everybody start telling more stories at work? 
That's my question and my challenge to all of you. Doug, thank you so much. And to our listening audience, if you enjoyed today's session, it would mean the world to us and really help us tell a great story to a lot of other listeners. If you could subscribe to Selling the Cloud podcast, comment on what you heard and rank us. It would mean the world to us. Doug, thank you so much for being our guest on the Selling the Cloud podcast today. And Mark, thank you as always. Thank you so much, Ray. Thank you, Doug.